January 12th. And now as we turn our attention to the reading of the New Testament, our narrative today will come from the book of Matthew. In chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Matthew, we'll read about the fact that God can meet every need. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. You cast every care on Him. That's what He wants you to do, you know. Cast all your cares on Him, for He cares for you. And God responds to faith. The men who brought their friend exercised cooperative faith, while the sick woman had almost superstitious faith. Christ asks you and me the same question, the same question He asked the two blind men. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Well, let me ask you, what's your reply to that question from the Lord? What's your concern? Do you believe He's able to meet uh, your concern? God's greatest concern is the salvation of sinners. The healing of the sick is a great miracle, yes, and the raising of the dead, very impressive, even a greater miracle. But the salvation of the lost soul is the greatest miracle of all. And God calls us to help Him reach the lost. Well, with that, let's begin reading today here in the New Testament. January 12th, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Blasphemy! This man talks like he is God, some of the teachers of religious law said among themselves. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why are you thinking such evil thoughts? Is it easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? I will prove that I, the Son of Man, have the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, take your mat, and go on home, because you are healed. And the man jumped up and went home. Fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen right before their eyes. They praised God for sending a man with such great authority. As Jesus was going down the road, he saw Matthew sitting at his tax collection booth. Come, be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. That night, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to be his dinner guests along with his fellow tax collectors and many other notorious sinners. The Pharisees were indignant. Why does your teacher eat with such scum? They asked his disciples. When he heard this, Jesus replied, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to be merciful. I don't want your sacrifices. For I have come to call sinners, not those who think they are already good enough. One day the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Jesus responded, Should the wedding guest mourn while celebrating with the groom? Some day he will be taken from them, and then they will fast. And who would patch an old garment with unshrunk cloth? For the patch shrinks and pulls away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger hole than before. 
and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. The old skins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. That way, both the wine and the wineskins are preserved. By putting our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf, justifying us and adopting us, we are saved, born again, made children of God. Now, the question I want to answer is how do we know if we've put our faith in the Lord? And what is the fruit then of faith in the Lord? The fruit of faith is repentance, lives that are marked with repentance. What I'm so concerned about is it seems to be just fine here where we are for people to say i'm a christian with there being no transformation no repentance no hatred for sin nothing about their lives that's ever been different except for the fact that when they were six years old they got scared of hell and got baptized or their mama and daddy were methodist or they grew up in this church or they went to this BBS or they went to, so there's no real transformation of soul. There's just, I've been to church a bit, so I'm a, a Christian and the Bible, listen, the Bible's not gonna let us get away with that. Now that's difficult because we live in a culture that doesn't wanna ever say that anything's wrong. Now it can be wrong for you, but it better not be wrong for anybody else but you, that, that you are the beginning and the end of any moral reasoning. And the second you think there's moral reasoning that's true for everyone, you're a bigot. And so to demand repentance, like the Bible's going to demand, it is to really set ourselves up to be misunderstood, set ourselves up to be marginalized, set ourselves up not to be the cool kids. And so I want to try to bring some clarity to this idea of repentance, because when all said and done, repentance is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So what does repentance look like? I mean, is it crying? Is it regret? Is it sad? What does it mean to repent? Is it just is it just that military term that means to turn and walk the other way? Well, let's chat about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, here's what you've got. You've got two types of grief, two types of sorrow. All right, so let's do this. Two types of regret, hurt. I wish I wouldn't have done that. All right, here's what the Bible just said. There's a type of grief, a type of sorrow that is godly, that leads to repentance and salvation without regret. Life without regret. That's a Nike commercial. Life with a bam, swoosh on it. All right, Lifeway, sell that, all right? Now, you've got this idea of life without regret, salvation without regret, and then you've got worldly sorrow that leads to death. Worldly grief is almost always horizontal. All right, how many of you have kids? Uh, have you got kids that just are sad they got caught? Not really sad for what they did, they're just sad they got busted. So they're saying sorry, but they don't, they're not really sorry. They're more sorry that they just got busted. This is horizontal grief. It has nothing to do with God. There is no acknowledgement that I have sinned against God. It, it is not spiritual at all. It is simply, man, I've blown it. Man, my wife is really angry. Man, my kids are really frightened. Man, my coworkers don't trust me. It's just horizontal. It is emotional and not spiritual. 
purely emotional and not spiritual. And the reason that's problematic is because emotions calm down, don't they? And so everyone in this room knows that you will impulsively make some decisions around emotion that you're not or that you are. And then when those emotions settle down, what do you do? You go right back to what you were doing, right? So it's not transformative. It's horizontal grief that has you in an emotional state promising you'll never do it again, but there's no spiritual roots. It doesn't have anything to do with God. It's just you, you've made some mistakes, your life's burning down, and you hate the fact that your life's burning down. If It's that kind of apology you'll hear uh, athletes make sometimes. I'm sorry if that offended you. I uh, didn't mean for that to offend anybody. That, like, that's not an apology, man. You're actually putting it on other people. I'm sorry that you were offended. I didn't do anything. It's you that are wrong. And that's what happens in worldly sorrow. I'm sorry that you, and this leads to death. Godly sorrow doesn't operate like that. So let's talk about godly sorrow, godly grief. Godly grief has sight. It can see. Now that sounds um, silly and elementary, but man, don't ever despise the gift of sight. To be able to see sin is a great mercy and grace from God because most of it, uh, most of us are blind to our rebellion against God and our sinfulness towards God. We're just blind to it. And when God grants sight to people, it is a beautiful gift. And so when the word of God is preached or when you read it, if you feel discomfort, if you don't like, if you feel uneasy, look at me, don't ever despise that. That is a gift from God to let you see. And the gift of sight is the first marker of godly sorrow. I have sinned. And, and this sorrow has to be vented. This sight that leads to this sorrow, after it sees and feels sorrow, then begins to get active in both confession and other actions. So if you remember how worldly sorrow is passive, godly sorrow is active. It's going to put a bullet in the head of the lion by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to give it comfort. It's not going to buy it a kennel and a new chew toy. Not going to grab a new leash. It's going to chamber around, drag it out into the street, and pop it, and probably pop it multiple times over a course of decades. You're constantly trying to hide stuff. I mean, listen, David said, when I kept quiet about my sin, my bones wasted away. This kind of whitewashed pretty real Christians of the Metroplex has to die. It's got to. You got no shot at legitimate legitimate freedom if you're constantly trying to put out this vibe that you're farther along than you are, that you're not struggling like you are, that you're not wrestling like you are. That's a, a facade that enslaves you and does nothing to let you walk in the freedom that Christ has made available to you. But the shame that we feel under the weight of God's holiness is not a type of shame that leads us into sin, but rather a type of shame that leads us out. It's the lifting up of the prostitute's face by Jesus, where he goes, no, 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 we're not doing this anymore. And he leads her out of that bondage. It's a type of nakedness that we find true warmth in, a lifting of the head and a leading towards life. And then godly grief produces a hatred for sin, uh, we begin to hate. I said, we hate the lion. And we hate it. Don't think he's cute anymore. Don't like his tricks. We want him to die. Violently, painfully, quickly die. That's what happens. We hate our sins. To belittle the name of our God is no longer acceptable to us. We want it dead. And then that, all that grief and all those pieces come together um, by the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us into repentance and a life without regret. 
here's the thing about repentance, for it's bad rap. Repentance is just a really sweet surrender. It's just a in weariness, giving it over to the Lord. Psalm chapter 10, verses 16 through 18. The Lord is King forever and ever. Let those who worship other gods be swept from the land. Lord, you know the hopes of the helpless. Surely you will listen to their cries and comfort them. You will bring justice to the orphans and the oppressed, so people can no longer terrify them. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything your land produces. Then He will fill your barns with grain, and your vats will overflow with the finest wine.